Yeah. Keeps on being present everywhere. Let's turn to Hebrews 9 as usual, but also we'll be locking in a little bit in Leviticus 16. This is a reference point, really, for that which is called Yom Kippur, which is from the Hebrew word kapara, which means hilasterion in the Greek or the mercy seat, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And that's the real focus in Hebrews chapter 9, almost throughout the whole chapter and into 10, is the analogy or the antitype of Yom Kippur. Azazel, you've probably heard that word before, A-Z-A-Z-E-L. And before we get started in earnest, there's one thing that keeps on appealing to me lately, and that is that we cast our anxieties upon the Lord. We live in an age of anxiety for sure. And in order for maximum attentiveness, we need to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. With that knowledge that he cares for us, we can deposit our anxieties with him. And as Barth put it in his excellent treatment of anxiety, we leave the sphere of anxiety through depositing them with the Lord. And then we're ready for maximum attentiveness. The order of God's revelation is from obscurity to clarity. I've said that many times, and that becomes an order of teaching. Clarity becomes all the more plain when it emerges from obscurity. There's a reason that God lives in a cloud, and he is beclouded on purpose throughout much of the Old Testament and then is revealed in Jesus Christ, who comes with the clouds in glory to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 9, Daniel 10, Daniel 7. God spoke at first obscurely. We know this from the lead-off passage in Hebrews. He spoke obscurely and in part through various means and sundry methods in the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken fully and clearly in a son. We also know that according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, first we see as in a glass obscurely, but then face to face, clearly and completely. So effective teaching sometimes proceeds from obscurity to clarity. And because it does so, the clarity becomes all the more pronounced, all the more crystal clear, so that the word becomes a crystal river flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, I've deliberately complicated uh, speaking of the coming of Christ. I have deliberately complicated, and by doing so, made obscure the reality of God speaking to us in a son by speaking of three appearings and three comings again of Jesus Christ following upon his first coming, that is, his first appearing, in which, at the culmination of which, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His first coming 
and his first appearing came through what is known as the Christmas miracle. And the conception in a virgin woman and the birth through the Virgin Mary of the Lord Jesus Christ, the means by which the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel is his name, interpreted as God with us. Jesus Christ is God with us. The only way that he became and is God with us is by himself becoming without God in the moments of the cross and the eternal bearing of sin. He actually is the one who is, Yahweh, the one who is, inconceivably and incomprehensibly to us, the one who by his very essence and existence is, became that which is not and cannot be in the new creation, that being sin. And so I can only, the more I recognize this, the more I cross the threshold of worship. And I hope that's our last act in Hebrews, worship. So I've deliberately complicated Emmanuel's coming to three appearings and three comings again following his first coming or his first appearing in which at the culmination, at the termini of the ages, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's Hebrews 9.26. In which he was offered passively and in which he took upon himself actively the sins of many, that being all human beings. In Hebrews 9.28, referring back to Isaiah 53.12, in doing so, he became sin, that the world would become the righteousness of God in union with him. You try to figure that out, that he became sin, and you can't figure it out. That's why we use words like inconceivable or incomprehensible. There is a level of mystery that is to remain incomprehensible and bring us to the threshold of worship and then across that threshold. His first coming again was his resurrection from the dead, accomplished by the glory of God the Father through the Holy Spirit, Romans 1, 4, Romans 6, 3, and 4. And you'll see verses in the printed version of this. His second coming again is his coming in the Spirit to the New Covenant community. That's why he's seen in Revelation walking and standing and then moving among the lampstands, the seven churches that represent all of the messianic community in our time. And so his second coming again is his coming in the spirit to the new covenant community with whom and in whom he is present in this world. And throughout the thankfully limited duration of this present evil age. He stands and walks among the lampstands, which together is the witnessing community. 
with its confession, its acknowledgement of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance. His first and second coming again are connected to his present appearing. His coming in resurrection and his coming in the Holy Spirit are coetaneous with, they happen along the same time as his third appearing, which is his appearing before the face of God on the Godward side of the integral cosmos called heaven for us, where he intercedes for us to save us completely. His third coming again is his parousia, as it's called in the scriptures, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, which by a brief definition is his effective presence. Fan it out a little bit, we have his effective, visible, glorious presence when he affects the fundamental universal transformation of the condition of all of once mortal and corruptible creation. The resurrection of the dead, the transference of those who are alive and remain from immortality and corruptibility to deathlessness and incorruption, called the redemption of our bodies in Romans 8, 23. On the day of redemption in Ephesians 4:30, until then, the Holy Spirit seals us for that day, keeps us for that day. The third coming again is the same as his second appearing. Now, this is all part of my complication, deliberately, of this doctrine of his becoming Emmanuel, God with us. The third coming again is the same as his second appearing as great archpriest in Hebrews 9.28b. All of these, his first and foremost coming, which is always adverted to no matter what are the other comings you're talking about or the comings again you're talking about, we always advert to, turn our attention back to his first coming, his fundamental coming, which culminated in his being made a sacrifice for our sins, putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the termini of the ages. His then first, second, and third comings again, his three appearings may be simplified and clarified in this simple declaration. God has spoken to us in a son in these last days. Given this, we do not hope for the reconciliation of the world to God that has come in his son. Our eyes need to get used to the light in this new room in which the world is already reconciled to God. Yet to be redeemed and liberated from its slavery to corruption, but already reconciled. This changes your whole perspective of life, it changes our whole horizon and view of all people and all of creation, even the animal kingdom, even the vegetable kingdom, if you want to call it that, all of creation, all the universe, which we're being allowed a greater view because of the advancements of science, courtesy of the grace of God. That's 
new big telescopes. The reconciliation of the world to God has come in God's Son. It's right in the songs, God and sinners reconciled, is something we celebrate not just at the cross, but at the Christmas miracle. The Christmas miracle is the signal and the sign, born of a virgin. And it's vain, if not distracting, to try to explain the virgin birth in terms of biological terms, in terms of what is called natural theology that takes away from the whole point of the matter, which is a supernatural divine act, which is not only the Christmas miracle, but salvation per se, a divine act having nothing to do with human beings except for human beings like Mary being ready for it and receptive to it. God spoke the word mashalem in his son, as we've seen before. Mashalem is the basically Aramaic equivalent of tetelestai. Jesus spoke largely, if not almost exclusively, in Aramaic. But Tetelestai was for a Greek audience who would receive the Gospel of John and other New Testament writings. God spoke the word mashalem. He spoke it in the heart of his son in John 19, 28. And then the son spoke mashalem with his mouth in John 19, 30. Heard, not by many, but heard at least by one, the beloved disciple. Tetelestai is the word that best substitutes for mashalem in the Greek language for a Greek-speaking audience. And as I've said before, and it bears repetition, mashalem means peace has been made. I think that's the best interpretation of tetelestai when reconciliation of the world was made in Christ. It just makes sense that Christ would say peace has been made. And then in his resurrection to greet his disciples every time with this greeting, peace, peace, peace has been made. Now the God of peace has led up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, the blood of his cross blood by which God made peace and by which he reconciled everything in the heavens and on earth in him. In Jesus, in the son of his love, in Colossians 1.13, by in whom we have forgiveness of sins in 1.14, according to the promise of the new, the better, the everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 31.34 of course, Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17, bracketing our central section. Our eyes have to adjust to see Jesus in this light. Not just in the light of what men call the, quote, historical Jesus, which was a doctrine along with source criticism in the early and late 20th century that was meant to detract from who Jesus Christ is. And so our eyes must adjust to see Jesus in this light as the Redeemer and Reconciler and in the universal light of his salvific grace 
and not just in the light of what men call the historical Jesus, though of course that too is important. And we have four witnesses called the evangelists who help us out immensely with that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fundamental and indispensable thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The fundamental and indispensable thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whenever we speak of his second appearing or that which is popularly referred to as his second coming, it is always speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ as God and the man Jesus who was crucified. At the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where the disciples had discovered the absence of the body of the Lord Jesus, and there is a profound link between the empty tomb and the virgin birth, as bracketing the days of his flesh, which we may get into. We may, we're actually in a, an approach to Christmas when we approach the coming into the world of Jesus Christ, who when he came into the world said, a body you have made for me, that I may do your will. And his will was to offer himself. At the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where the disciples had discovered the absence of the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were very perplexed about this, suddenly two men, duo Andres, stood by them in dazzling clothes. Luke 24, 4. These two men, Andres being a form of the word aner, A-N-A-D-E-R, aner. These two men announced the first coming again of Jesus by telling the women who had come to the tomb where Jesus' dead body was laid that he had risen from the dead, his first coming again. These two men in white were charged with telling the women, Mary Magdalena, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, that's the Zebedee boys, and the others in their circle of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I would call these women the anti-view women. That's just my, sorry. Every once in a while, sadly, I peek out. But anyways, this circle of ladies were the witnesses of the empty tomb. And these two men in white announced his first coming again. But immediately, what's striking here is immediately they reminded them of what Jesus had told them while he was still in Galilee. While they're announcing this spectacular event of his resurrection, they go right back immediately and say, the Son of Man must be handed over into the hands of sinful men, hamartolon, same word used in Hebrews 12.3. Men, anthropon, not andres here. And be crucified, and the third day arise. So it, seconds after announcing these two men in white, apologies to the men in black movies, these two men in white, and I'm not going to say they're angels, because it doesn't say angels, it says men in white. And 
white because the clothing was dazzling and had the appearance of lightning, but the lightning didn't just strike and disappear, it remained, the lightning flash of their clothing. Two men. Same word for two men is used when Moses and Elijah, not angels, but men, were seen speaking with Jesus Christ about his exodus. An exodus in which he would not lead Israel out of Egypt, but lead creation out of corruption. An exodus that would happen in Jerusalem. And we have much more to say about that. These two men immediately then reminded them of the words of Jesus while still in Galilee when he spoke of his crucifixion. You can't speak of these other wonderful things, his comings again and his appearings, without adverting immediately to the primary thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Even when announcing his resurrection, the men in white do not deviate from the communication of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The resurrected is none other than the crucified Jesus. Him who was crucified and in his crucifixion sacrificed himself to put away sin. He became, in type, the he-goat that was for Azazel, A-Z-A-Z-E-L, Azazel. Tradition and legend says Azazel is the name of a demon. It is not the name of a demon, even though the Denzel Washington movie about Azazel was to that effect. No. The word Azazel means to carry away. And that's exactly what the second he-goat, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement did. He was carried away with your sins. Jesus got carried away with your sins. He came back and your sins didn't. There's a multitude of analogies in the Day of Atonement, as it's called, and rightly so, because that word is used 16 times. The word propitiation that the penal substitution crowd is so scared to death about is found 16 times in Leviticus 16. Propitiation. Now the use of the phrase two men is intriguing and at first it's mysterious. Previously Luke, the meticulous historian, reported the remarkable incident of Jesus' transfiguration, says two men were there with Jesus. They were not angels. I'm not saying these two men were not angels at the tomb, but we're going to see two men in white again in a moment. Luke used the word, the plural of the word, aner, which means a man, an adult male person of marriageable age, a human being, a man in the prime of life as distinguished from a woman, as distinguished also from a young boy. I realize that sentence is extremely confusing today because it actually says man, grown man, woman, and boy. What are they? They. 
a comedian this week said, it's not Piano Man by Billy Joel, it's Piano They. So just get that right. Now, you say, don't make fun of that. It's a serious problem. Yes, it is a serious problem because it's the result of an apostasy from the word of God. A serious apostasy that is ending our culture. We are in the death rattle of a Western civilization right now. And the proof of it is everywhere. The only hope is not your favorite presidential candidate. The only hope is God breathing his word into those in the most desperate need of it. Don't get mad and angry and reactionary about the people that are doing the evil today. Pray for them because they end up being the new Sauls of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul. We don't condone evil, obviously. But there are people who are showing their desperate need above all, and that's a good thing. One thing God has done for me since the moment I called out to him in my desperation, he kept me in desperation as I despaired of my own effort. Repentance, if we're going to understand it truly, is simply the renunciation of all self-sufficiency, of all secondary sufficiency. And believing is merely the acknowledgement of the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Luke spoke, not of angels, but of Moses and Elijah, called two men, with whom Peter and the Zebedee brothers, the sons of thunder, as Jesus nicknamed them, saw speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about Jesus' exodus. Luke 9.31, a tremendous verse. In Luke 9, 29, it says, as Jesus was praying, suddenly his clothing became as a bright flash of lightning. In Luke 9, 30, it says, two men, Andres Duo, were talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were grown adult males. They were Moses and Elijah, rendered hyper-identifiable in glory. What glorification does is it renders you hyper identifiable. Two men in dazzling white clothing also announced the third coming again, the second appearing of Jesus Christ, our great archpriest. The second coming again being Jesus coming in the spirit to be with the new covenant community, John 14, 18 and following. In Acts 1, 10, 11 to actually make that Acts 1, 10, B through 11. And you're wondering why I'm doing it this way. Well, obscurity to clarity, remember? Two men in white, it says. Two men in white announced the third coming again of Jesus. As they announced the resurrection, the first coming again, they announced the third coming again, his glorious appearance, universal. While Jesus' disciples were gazing into the sky as Jesus was going, being taken up in a cloud, Suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. The two men in white said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Good question for the whole church today. It says, This same Jesus, Jesus Christ, whom Hebrews 13.8 calls the same yesterday, today, and for the ages, this same 
Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, that's simply the Godward side of the integral cosmos called heaven, will come in the way that you have seen him going into heaven. He will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This third coming again of Jesus is what Hebrews author refers to in his own way in this, as the second appearing of Jesus, our great archpriest. I say in his own way because the Hebrews author refers to those who are eagerly waiting for him, and that alludes to the custom of the Israelites waiting for the archpriest who appeared to them before going into the Holy of Holies of the replica tent. They eagerly await the appearance again of their archpriest who was seen by them a first time before presenting the offering, the blood of the sacrifice in the earthly Holy of Holies. If he was seen by them a second time, it was the sign that the sacrifice and offering was accepted by Yahweh. If it had not been the case, and if the archpriest was an unacceptable or unauthorized representative of Israel, like two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who both died in the temp in the very holy of holies, because they thought they could just go in there anytime they wanted. If it was unacceptable and the representative not accepted and the blood not accepted, he would have died in the tent before the Lord. Some traditions say that a rope was tied around the ankle of the high priest in case he did die. Nobody's going to go in and rescue him. They had to drag him out. So when they saw him coming out the other side, as it were, or coming back out after the offering, that was a cause for great joy. Jesus Christ, our great archpriest, will be seen a second time precisely because he is the divinely authorized representative, not only of Israel, but of all humanity. Consequently, in his second appearing as great archpriest, he will be seen not only by those who are eagerly anticipating him, but every eye will see him even the eyes of those who impaled him. In seeing Jesus, everyone will experience the salvation of God, yes, even those who crucified him. That's the whole point. Even in his second appearing, when every eye sees him, his third and final coming, again, which is his second appearing by my complication, the marks of his crucifixion become the identifying feature that every eye is seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified. What makes him hyper-identifiable are the nail scars, which reveal that he was impaled to the wood of the cross. You see, we're deliberately complicating his comings and his appearings into three appearings, a foundational coming, and three comings again. You say, that's complicated and obscure. Yep, it is in order finally to simplify and purposely obscure in order to bring full clarity and let Yahweh emerge from the cloud and announce himself as Jesus. So the three appearings, a foundational coming and three comings again, marking seven specific features, 
finally can be simplified in this. The simplicity of all of this is that God has willed not to be a God without man, but with man. Not to be without you, but with you. Not to be without us, but with us. Not even God in himself. Not even God in three persons or three modes of being only, but God in man. That is what God willed. God in his creation. He does this by God the Son, the eternal word, being made flesh, in John 1.14, becoming man, Philippians 2.7, Hebrews 2.14, sharing a sin-affected humanity, and yet being without sin. He was born under the law so that he was born under the tyranny of the law, which had been hijacked by sin and by the flesh. I'll be saying much more about this because this is a, another lens that needs to drop if we're going to see Jesus clearly in 2024. Jesus' three appearings and his coming and then his three comings again all may be reduced to one word, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7:14, a sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Matthew 1:23, which is interpreted God with us. All these comings and appearings are singly and concisely God speaking to us in these last days in a son. But even more than this, all these appearings and comings again are God revealing how much he is for all of humanity in all of its times, in all of the good creation too. God shows that he is for the whole of his creation and for all of created reality by banishing all that is not of his good creation, chaos, death, sin, the flesh, evil. God does all of this in himself, by himself, in his son, with whom he is one. It's very significant in Genesis 1-2 that the earth became without void, without form and void. That is a poetic way of God saying that he does not allow chaos in the new creation. In the death of the cross, the result of the radical representative obedience of the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, God is Emmanuel. So now, you see, this is how I think around the passage we're in. Let's look at Hebrews 9.28. We're not speaking in a vacuum. We're not even speaking outside of Hebrews. I'm doing an exegesis of Hebrews and have since the beginning of today's message. 9.28, so the Messiah, having been once offered, that's the passive of Prospero, to assume, that's the active of Anafero, take upon himself, very, very important to understand this, to assume or to take upon himself to bear 
to assume, to carry, and to bear away. There's a deliberate reference to Yom Kippur in which there are two goats. One goat is for the Lord, the other is for Azazel. The one that's for the Lord has the sins of Israel transferred ritually to him by the high priest. And he's killed. The scapegoat, the second goat, goes out into the wilderness. He is sent forth. He carries away sin. It's two different ways of showing one thing. Sins were born and sins were carried away. Sins were carried and sins were born and sins were born away. And so the image to me is that when Jesus was called back from the land of the dead, from the realm of the dead, he came back without sin, and he will come again without sin. He's the goat, as it were, that returns, but without the sin that was transferred to him. And someone will say, well, that's not what is meant by the Day of Atonement. Now, you can tell me all that you think happened in the Day of Atonement, but everything in the New Testament is striking new creative interpretations of what happened in those offerings. And so that's what I'm giving you today. Not giving you a... In fact, I'm toying with the idea of not reading any more commentaries and doing the rest like Freebird. You can't put me in... I'm going to take the rest of the exegesis just straight from the Greek text and not read any more commentaries because they've been mildly helpful. But in some cases, they distract from the Holy Spirit's leading. So I may do the rest of Hebrews under Operation Freebird. I always wondered why in the lyrics of that Leonard Skinner classic, which must be listened to therapeutically, if you're like me, once in a while you need that, why they said, this bird you cannot change, when they should have said, this bird you cannot cage. Why not cage there? That would have been perfect. I'll change it, okay, anyways. I don't mind being changed, I just don't want to be caged. Don't fence me in. I'm going another song. Hebrews 9.28. So the Messiah, having once offered to assume, carry, bear, and bear away sins. This is a reference to John 1.29 also. Because Jesus has never called the goat, never called the ox, never called the bull, never called the pigeon, but always called the lamb. Because in the lamb is the comprehension and the inclusion of all the offerings, whether goats, bullocks, pigeons, doves, rams, etc., there was a ram in the thicket, and God said, I will, make, I will provide a lamb. There was a ram in the thicket. I will provide a lamb. Abraham said God will provide himself a lamb, meaning the lamb is going to take the place of the rams, the goats, all the other animals that were offered in sacrifice. The lamb taking away the sin of the world is the antitype, which is, says it all. So the Messiah having been offered once, once offered to assume, and again, the once offered is passive, that speaks of his passion, to assume, that's active. He took them up upon himself willingly. The judgment of the sins of the many will be seen or will appear 
in order to be seen is the way that right, it, it should be written out. A second separate time by those who are eagerly waiting him for him for salvation. But that's not all. In Jesus, there is the reality of the type of the two he-goats, male goats. In Leviticus 16, for the high priest to make propitiation for the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, coming from Kafar, which is the word for hilasterion, or hilasmos, or ex-hilasterion, all words for propitiation. One he-goat was said to be for the Lord. He was ritually burdened with the sins of the people of Israel and killed. The other was made the scapegoat, the he-goat for Azazel. Azazel, in the Greek text, I'll give you all the Greek words, I'm not even going to try to pronounce them, but they all come down to words that mean the banishment, the sending away, the bearing away, or the sending away, and one word even that's translated for Azazel or for the function of Azazel is aphesin, which means two things. It means punishment yielding to forgiveness. Separation yielding to reconciliation. Sending forth is even used in the Greek text of Leviticus 16.26. It's ex apostello, which is used in Galatians 4.4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. If you link this back to the Day of Atonement, it doesn't just mean that he sent his son into the world, but that he sent his son to be the scapegoat, to be the goat of the Day of Atonement. He sent him to bear away the sins of the world. Born of a woman, born under the law, in the fullness of time, ex apostello. Not apostello sent, ex apostello, which is precisely the word used for what the high priest does, sending the scapegoat out into the wilderness where he's never seen again. And that means the sins upon which he bore, which he bore were never an issue again. They were forgotten. Both of those things are typified or antitypified in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the reality of which those are merely ritual representations. So he was to make away with the sins of Israel, which had been ritually transferred to him, that goat, into the desert. That's the one for Azazel. The one for the Lord was killed. The one for Azazel carried away the sins into the wilderness. And I think there, there is a definite depiction of Jesus Christ being far from God. And I can translate that with a good conscience in Hebrews 2.9, by the grace of God being apart from God or far from God, he tasted death for everyone. Why did he say, why did the man Jesus say, through the psalmist, echoing down the corridors of history, why are you so far from helping me, speaking to God? Because in the inconceivability of the mystery of the cross, God, the Son, and the man, Jesus, was without God in becoming sin. Emmanuel, to me, God with us, only makes sense if we advert to the cross where 
the man, Jesus, was without God for us. That's Azazel and Emmanuel. The one whose very essence and existence is I am became that which is not and which has no possibility of existence. He became sin. This is something that goes even beyond what we can conceive in words like sin offering, holocaust, whole burnt offering. All of these are insufficient ways of signifying a reality that extends beyond the signs. All of these things are merely signs speaking of something signified that is incomprehensible, inconceivable, past knowing. The love of Christ that goes past knowing, meaning there's no sign that can properly fully signify what was done in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Jesus, not ritually, but really, both bore in himself the sins, not only of Israel for a year, but of the whole world forever. And he carried them away. As Barth put it succinctly, he bears away the sin of the world, but he does bear them. That's a very succinct way of saying it. He bears them away, yes, but he does bear them. And that's what's known by these. That's what comes to us. That's what the knowledge that comes to us from the two goats. He bears them, the he goat that is for the Lord. He bears them away, the he goat that is for Azazel. The he-goat that goes into nothingness. The he-goat that goes into the wasteland. The he-goat that is made nothingness. And made that which can never be in the new creation, which is sin. That we would be made the very righteousness of God in him. Another, I know people don't like the word inconceivable or incomprehensible, but you have to use those words because there is a threshold beyond which we cannot have human comprehension, but only worship. Take out the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation, and you take out the potential for worship. And so Jesus, in Jesus, once and for all, sacrifice and offering, is the reality of all those sacrifices, offerings, whole burnt offerings, and holocausts offered under the law, none of which could take away sin or purify consciousness from sin. Jesus got carried away with our sins. He came back from the realm of the dead. Our sins did not. The sending away and far removed aspect of Azazel. And if you take it into the legend and make it the name of a demon and do all this fancy stuff with it, it's intriguing to the human nature that has an inquiring mind to the point where it wants to read the inquirer. There is a sick curiosity that gets into legends, whether pagan or Jewish legend. Azazel has the aspect of a carrying far away, out 
into the wilderness. Other ways that are describing this is he takes our sins as far as the east from the west. Uh, that it just that's on and on forever, obviously. The total taking away of sin. So his sending away, the sending away or the far removed aspect in the meaning of Azazel speaks to the translation of Hebrews 2.9 in which it says that far from God or without God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus, of course, by this spatial analogy, we can say that in order for God to be with man, Jesus the man, in an inconceivable way, had to be without God. Matthew that begins with Emmanuel ends with Azazel, with Christ being crucified, crying out far from God. And of course, Jesus is the reality of the burnt offering, for in his death he was consumed by the fire of God, and in his consuming the old man was consumed, something that could not happen in all the holocausts and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament. So in Hebrews 10:1 and following, after referring to the third coming again or the second appearance in Hebrews 9:28, what's the writer do? He does the same thing as the, the men in white do. He goes right back, adverts, or turns his attention back to the foundational first coming. Hebrews 10, 1 and following, after referring to the third coming again, in Hebrews 9, 28, the PT adverts once again to the crucified. For by speaking of the inefficacy of the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, Hebrews 10, 8, referring to Psalm 40 and verse 6, Septuagint 39, 7, the PT adverts again like the two men in white did after referring to his resurrection in Luke 24, 4, he adverts once again to the sacrifice, to the cross. There is always a return to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Luther, in 1525, Martin Luther, was quoted as saying this, whether I will or not, when I listen to Christ, there is sketched in my heart a picture of a man hanging on a cross, just as my countenance is naturally sketched upon the water when I look therein. Luther gets the point here, and he's cited in Barth. So let's look at Hebrews 9.24. This is for those of you that don't want to stray far from the text, <laughs> are you still doing Hebrews or what? Yeah, Hebrews 9.24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of God for us, not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another. This is all my translation. For if that were the case, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Put an arrow here. This is exegetical archery. What does he do? 
After referring to his appearing before the face of the Father, he goes right back to this. But as it were, but as it is now once, hapax, at the termini of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, he has been manifested or has appeared. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, hapax, and with or after that judgment or that death, judgment, so also Christ put an arrow there into 928 or into the next verse, 928. So also Christ, having been once, hapax, offered for the assuming of the judgment by death of the sins of the many, there I give the sense, that's all people, will appear. He will appear a second time without sin to those awaiting for him for salvation. Why without sin? Because as the he goat for Azazel, he went into the wilderness with sin. But he came back without it. We're looking for him to come back without it. The lamb assumes all of these types. And therefore, there aren't goats going to hell and sheep going to heaven. That's another thing for another time. But look what he does. He comes a second time to those waiting him for salvation. But what's he do then? He's just blatantly talked about his second appearing, which is his third coming again. But what does he do then? He goes right back to this for the law only a shadow of good things about to come, Hebrews 10.1, and not the actual essence of those things with the same old sacrifices that they continually offer year after year can never make perfect those who draw near or complete those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, once and for all purified, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But with those sacrifices, there's actually an annual remembrance of sins once a year, an annual remembrance. Why annual? Because he's dealing with Yom Kippur, an annual sacrifice in which these two goats, as well as oxen, and oxen is also sacrificed for Aaron and his family because Aaron was a sinner, unlike Jesus, who didn't need the oxen sacrifice because he wasn't a sinner. And then there was also a sheep that was offered for atonement, and that, of course, is again a reference to Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews 8.12, quoting Jeremiah 31.34, the whole point is that the new covenant involves a total forgetfulness of sins. I will never again remember their sins, meaning there never is need again of another Yom Kippur ritual sacrifice and so the pastor can take all this and say, so why are you guys thinking about going to the Yom Kippur offering after I've just explained all this to you? You just might find yourself walking into the judgment of fire that's going to happen in August of A.D. 70 if you do that. So let's look really quickly, advancing all the way to verse 10. This is my translation of 10.4 to 10.10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, that means offered on Yom Kippur, read Le Leviticus 16 for your homework if you want to. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, as offered on Yom Kippur every year, to take away, take away, take away, take away 
sin. This is why coming into the world, he, Christ Jesus, says, coming into the world through the miracle of Christmas, he, Jesus Christ, says, sacrifice and offering, offered under the law, that is, is not what you willed. This is not your final will. Not what you willed. But you've made a body for me. Jesus entered into the realm of creaturehood. God designed and built a body for him. You've designed a body for me. You're not pleased with holocausts and offerings for sin, offered under the law, meaning. Then I said, who? Jesus, look, I've come. It's written about me in the roll of the scroll to do, O God, your will. Which isn't to offer more sacrifices, but to offer himself as a sacrifice. So the PT comes into the picture here after the quote from Psalm 40 or Psalm 39. Septuagint. He says in the text above where he said sacrifices and offerings and holocausts and offerings for sin you haven't willed, that is those offered according to the law, he then says, look, I've come to do your will. Thus, he abolishes the first, abolishes the first, meaning the whole list of sacrifices and offerings made according to the law are abolished. And therefore, the whole system in which these keep being offered, and thus the whole first covenant is abolished. To establish the second. That is, the doing of God's will by the Messiah. That's the second thing. And the thing that God wills and accepts. Jesus, and thus to establish the second, the new, the better, the everlasting covenant, by which will we have been and are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, F-hapax, hapax with a strengthening prefix. So what's the point I'm making here? The point I'm making here is that the writer immediately adverts to Jesus' sacrifice after speaking of his second appearing at the end of Hebrews 9, just as the men in white did immediately after announcing Jesus' resurrection. They referred right back to what he said while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man, that one who's coming in the clouds in glory to the Ancient of Days with power and great glory, that Son of Man must suffer. He must be delivered into the hands of sin-controlled men and crucified and be buried and raised again the third day. Remember he said that? He keeps going back to that. The men in white did. The Hebrews author did. Maybe the Hebrews author is another one of the men in white, not confined to time, just like the men in black. It is pertinent to our exegesis to note, in closing, that Leviticus 16 and the description of the Yom Kippur regimen for making propitiation, the word exhalaskomai is used in Leviticus 16.6, 16.10, 16.11, 16.16, 17.16.17 twice, 16.18.20.24.27.30.32, three times in 33 and once in 34. That's propitiation. Halaskomai, which is used 
also is a synonym in Hebrews 2.17, and halasterios in Romans 3.25, in Hebrews 9.5, and halasmos in 1 John 2.2 and 4.10, which are translated in the Hebrew as kapara, from which eventually came kippur in Yom Kippur, day, yom, kippur of atonement, kippur, propitiation. There is an eternal Yom Kippur that happened in Jesus Christ crucified, where Emmanuel became Azazel, and where the goat for the Lord was killed and slaughtered, and the goat for Azazel went into a far, far country with our sins. He bore them, and he bore them away. Bearing them away, he did bear them. And kapara, or propitiation, is called the definitive act of love in 1 John 4.10, in its final reference in the scriptures. For the sins of the people, and it's very interesting that just before he gets into the Day of Atonement, he reminds the readers right at the beginning of Leviticus 16 of what happened in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu did the wrong thing, offered strange fire on the altar, went at a time not willed by God, went because they thought they could do that whenever they want. This is kind of like what happens when people worship Mary instead of have Mary in the right perspective. The whole worship of Mary is the apostasy of creaturely cooperation with divine redemption, a terrible departure from Christ. So then, Nadab and Abihu are remind, were reminded of them before we get into the true offering of the Day of Atonement. And so false representatives are represented against the true representative, Aaron, going into the Holy of Holies, and that in turn is contrasted with Jesus, the universal and divinely authorized God and man, who goes into the Holy of Holies after making a sacrifice for all the sins of all time, of all people in all places. This points to the need for a divinely authorized priest, which was Aaron himself in Leviticus 16, but Jesus forever. I hope we're clear on what we've been talking about with Azazel and Emmanuel. It's that Jesus, God with us, became without God so that we could be with God forever. Another way of saying this, if you want to be biblical in a more radical sense or a more defined and documented sense, he who knew no sin became sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Don't explain that away or even attempt to elucidate it. That's what it says. Still another way is to say that Jesus became a curse for us that, so that we, and indeed all of humanity, would receive the blessing given to Abraham, which is the blessing of justification and life, which is ultimately for all people. Galatians 3.14 compared with Romans 5.18. I hope we see Jesus clearly in his universally saving significance. Father, we pray that you will allow us to see Jesus and never to be dissuaded from the simplicity that's in Christ. The simplicity that's in Christ 
is that he is Emmanuel, God with us, because you, Father, willed not to be God without us, but to be God with us, not to be God outside us, but God in us, not to be God against us, but God for us. All of this is said in one name, Jesus. Amen.